um, it was it's like a, a cascading hill, and so the city's on top of the hill, and out here you have the ocean, and it was a, there was a seaport there, and um, it, was, it had two nicknames. One, it was called the Flower of Asia. The second nickname was the Crown Jewel of Rome, and these nicknames are important in the context of what Jesus is going to say to these churches. And so um, as the Crown Jewel of Rome... Uh, Smyrna had some very savvy leaders who went to some Roman emperors. You know, the Roman emperors loved to be um, worshipped and idolized. And we talked last week, at this time, the emperor is Domitian. Domitian had already proclaimed himself as a god over the world. He had coins printed with he sitting on top of the world, holding the seven stars, and he's, he's god of the world. And, and so emperor worship was huge in their day and time. And so the leaders of Smyrna went to the Romans empire and uh, to the, the uh, leaders of Rome and said, listen, we would love to build temples in, all, in honor to these Roman emperors. Because remember, what it, whoever the emperor was, it was like they became the Caesars and will cry out Caesar's Lord. So they built these temples on the top of the hill of the city. And uh, the leaders of Rome were so impressed by these temples that they gave them even more money. And so, now watch this, because you're going to find this later in the book of Revelation. They, they took literally gold bricks and paved a roadway up the hillside into the temples. And so at night, when the sun was setting, it was like a crown was sitting on top of this city with a golden paved road going right into the, the city of Smyrna, where all of these temples were built in honor of the emperor's who from the past as well as the present. The second uh, nickname, the flower of Asia, is because one of the um, scrubby plants that was readily available there, and really what Smyrna means is myrrh. And of course, you've heard of myrrh, right? When the, when the Magi came to the birth of Jesus, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so myrrh had two uh, common uses. It was used as perfume, and also, it was used to mix with spices in order to, um, to, to lay across a body that was dead and decomposing. And so Smyrna was known, uh, it, it literally, is, it's the, the plant itself is like bitter, and so Smyrna really means bitterness. So what I want to talk about this morning is this. Here's a church in the middle of this city that was huge into Roman worship and emperor worship. And uh, the poor people of the city, they lived at the bottom of the hill. And so the richer, the more elite lived on top of the hill. As the hill came cascading down, the poor lived down there. And it was also where they put their prisons. Now, one of the things that they failed to do when they architect the city is they failed to deal with the issue of sewage. And so everybody was kind of left on their own of digging trenches or pits. And so what would happen is that when the rains would come, all of that sewage would wash down the hill into the ocean, and then when the tide came up, it would flush it all right back into the part of the city and the prisons where the poor lived, and it was a horrible stench. So that's the city of Smyrna. That's the setting, and in the midst of that, there is a church that is seeking to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are suffering because of it, and they are suffering big time. And so the question is, how can I maintain my faith when it's put to the test? So I titled this message, Faith in the Fire, because these Christian believers, 
They were in the middle of the fire. They're trying to be authentic worshipers of Jesus. They're trying to share the love of God. They're trying to share the Lord Jesus as the only Savior of the world, as the only person to bow your knee to and confess that Jesus is Lord and he is the only God of, of the heavens and the earth. And so they are getting hammered because of their faith. And Jesus encourages them, man, do not give up. Persevere. Keep going. It's it's going to be better, right? It's going to, it's, I've, I've got something for you. So it kind of puts it in the context of what James says in his letter, and I put this on your outline. James says, consider pure joy, my brothers. Now remember that word joy is, is not a feeling. It's the settled assurance that God is in control, right? Regardless of what's going on around you, God's in control. It's the quiet confidence that ultimately everything's going to be all right because God is in control. He says, consider pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work. In other words, to persevere, I'm under the load, and so I'm going to keep moving. I'm not going to remove myself out from under the load, but I'm going to persevere under there because God's doing something. What's God doing? He's making you mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So the question begs to be asked, how do I maintain joy, a confidence in God, and knowing that no matter what's being thrown at me, no matter what's transpiring in my life, no matter what's happening, what's coming against me, God is ultimately going to use this for his glory and my benefit. If you were in this church and uh, all of a sudden you're being afflicted and you're being slandered and you're being thrown in prison, you know, how do you maintain your joy in the midst of that? Well, there are three principles that I think help us in order to put that into practice even in our lives. Number one is this. Jesus reminds them that there is power in his supremacy. And what I mean by his supremacy is that there is no one who is above Jesus, right? That emperor Domitian can stamp his face on a coin all he wants, but he is not the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is not the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he is not the one who's sitting at the right hand of the Father where everything has become his footstool. And Jesus reminds the church of that. And so in this immense time of poverty and, and tribulation, um, Jesus says, man, don't bow, don't bend, do not buckle to emperor worship in Smyrna because my supremacy far exceeds it. And so let me explain, as, as much as the city would uh, compete in uh, Olympic games, uh, this city, Smyrna, competed with other Roman cities, again, to, to build temples, and some of them were to Greek gods like Zeus and Apollos and, and, and many others. And so the temples, um, yeah, this is where you would have to go. You would walk up the golden streets, you would come to the temple of the god that you were there to worship, and you would bow your knee and you, there you would confess that this God, this emperor, is you know, the Lord God of, of all things. Now, why is that important? Why is Jesus' statement important in the midst of all this? It's because he is, he's saying to them, listen, these are the words of him, the first and the last who died and came to life again. In other words, he's saying, I am the author of life, I am the sustainer of life, I am the rock of life, I am in the midst of life, and I am the one who judges over eternal life. I am the one who died and came back again. So every week when we come here to worship, 
It is Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday just isn't on Easter. It is every single Sunday we come together because we are worshiping the Savior who was dead and came back to life again. Therefore, watch this, therefore, if that is Jesus and he is supreme over all things, that means that the word, word impossible is not a part of God's vocabulary. God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants at his choosing. And so oftentimes when you come to a situation in your life, you may just need to speak Jesus into that situation because when you bring to bear the name of Jesus and everything, all of his supremacy behind that name, even the Bible says that we are to pray in the name of whom? Jesus, right? So it is Jesus putting his stamp of approval, bringing all of his supremacy, bringing all of his inheritance to us because of our relationship with him so that when you speak Jesus into that situation, oftentimes Jesus shows up in miraculous ways because his name's been brought to bear. Now, I'll be the first one to say to you, just because you bring Jesus into the situation or the circumstance that might be coming against you does not mean that God's automatically going to remove the circumstance. I wish that were the case. I wish that were true, but it is not. But if God does not remove the circumstance, change the circumstance, reorder what is happening in you and around you, it's because God wants to do something inside of you. That is not a very popular message. But I'm just, I work for GPS, God's postal system. And uh, I don't like the mail like you do sometimes, but I'm called to deliver it. And so sometimes, here's what we do. When we are doing life and things begin to happen that are negative, oftentimes we'll take the negative circumstance, situation, and we will look at God through the lens, through the filter of what's just happened to us, and then we're going to make a determining factor as to whether or not God really loves us. You need to flip that. And what I mean by flip that, you always look at God's feelings towards you. You always look at God's identity in you. You always look at what God's doing in and through you, through the lens of Calvary, right? Through the lens of the cross. For at Calvary, Jesus forever settled the issue as to whether or not God loves you and whether or not he's for you. God is for you. He's not against you. And so like this church, sometimes we spend our entire lives praying, God help me, protect me, don't let anything bad happen to me, be with me, and, and all and on. And we're praying all these prayers and when that's not God's agenda at that moment in time. It might be that God, like in this church, God's going to let you go through, through some fires and some testings because he's in the process of maturing you and completing you into the image of Jesus Christ. So never interpret your circumstances through the lens of what's happened. You look at your circumstances through the lens of Calvary because God is working all things together for good to those who love God and who called are called according to his purpose. You always look through it through the lens of the supremacy of Christ in your life. Which brings me to the second point that dovetails into this, and that is he says, remember, there is a purpose in suffering. Now, I know that's hard for us to grasp. It's like, God, hey, 
I don't understand any purpose in my suffering. I don't get it. I don't, I don't believe it. I don't think that I need it. I think I should bypass it. I think that life should just be smooth and, uh, you know, no dips, no valleys, none of that stuff. But yet the Bible says, Jesus said, look, it's going to rain on the just and the unjust. We're all going to have problems and difficulties. But listen to what Jesus said to this church. Verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions. Now, it's very important to understand that word know. There are two Greek words that are translated know. There is one, it means to know intellectually, and there's one that means to know experientially. And what Jesus is saying, in essence, to this church is, there is nothing that you will ever encounter, there's nothing that you're going to go through that I don't know know that I don't know intellectually, that I don't know experientially, because I have walked that valley, I've walked that pathway, I've experienced what you're going to experience, and on the other side, um, I'm, I am with you, right? So I, I'm, I'm journeying with you through this valley. And someone says, well, I don't know about that. How in the world would Jesus understand my family problems? Do you know who I'm married to? Do you know who my in-laws are? Do you know... Right? So on down the line we go. Do you know that Jesus was raised in a family? <laughs> he had siblings, despite what the Catholic Church says. The Bible lists them. You think there was any sibling rivalry going on there? Uh, how would you like to grow up with a brother who's perfect? I'm thinking he got ragged on pretty hard. We do know that, you know, later on, there was a little bit of friction that happened between he and his mother. We do know that his, in fact, at one point in his ministry, his entire family tried to do an intervention. They said he was crazy, man. It's like, Jesus, you got you to get out of here and stop that stuff. You're, you're, just like, you're making a mess of things. So Jesus understands about families. He knows what it's like to have family issues. Well, but you don't understand, I'm getting ready to lose someone, or I have lost someone by way of death. How's Jesus going to relate to me with that? Well, let me remind you, he had a stepfather, Joseph, who died at some point before he started his earthly ministry, which was at age 30, so he experienced death there. We know that his cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded uh, because he was following Jesus. He was the forerunner to Christ, and so King Herod has him beheaded, and so Jesus had to deal with those kinds of grieving issues. We know that one of his best friends, Lazarus, dies. He shows up at the tomb, and the Bible says that Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Because he was showing us his humanity. It's like, listen, though I am God in the flesh, I set aside my God card. I'm showing you how to live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Death hurts. Grief hurts. It's painful. I've been there. I've done that. And just look at how Jesus handled those issues in the context of his own life. Yeah, well, Jesus can't know the guilt that I feel for my past actions and decisions. He can't know that because the Bible says that Jesus was without sin. That may be true. He was without sin, but when he hung on the cross, he hung on the cross and received upon himself all of your guilt and all of your shame from your past mistakes and your past decisions. And so Jesus is very well acquainted with those things. And if you listen to the words that he spoke while hanging on the cross, it shows you how he processed that. So here's what Jesus says. I know, no. 
I know intellectually, I know experientially, the tribulation, the trouble, the trials that you are going through. And that word affliction means to be under distress. It's like carrying a boulder on your back is the word that is described here that's attached to their life. It's like it's just like squeezing the life out of them. And one of the reasons why this was is because Domitian, the Roman emperor Domitian, had an obsession with death. And so oftentimes with the believers in the Roman Empire, he would strap like skins of animals on them and send them into the arenas. Or he, like Nero, would pitch them with tar and then put them on a stake and light them on fire to, to light up the festivities, his parties, that he would often throw. And so there were other ways that he was very obsessed with death. I'll not get into that because it might probably gross you out. But here's the second thing Jesus says. He says, I know your poverty, you're, but you're rich. Again, in their world, Domitian demanded be called Lord and God. And if you were unwilling to do that and you're in the marketplace, guess what these sellers could do? They could charge you double or triple the price of the product that you're purchasing. This church was a very poor church, monetarily, although they were rich because they had Jesus. And so Jesus knows what it meant to live in poverty. What did Jesus own? The clothes on his back? He said at one time, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And so he says, some of you are going through poverty, and maybe some of you are not going through physical poverty as we would think of it, but it might be in regard that you're not being elevated or promoted in a position in your workplace, and you know primarily because you are a follower of Jesus. You have a love and an affinity for Jesus, and sometimes people will push back against that, and that can happen in the workplace, keeping you from promotions, keeping you from pay raises. Maybe a coworker or an individual, suddenly they, you know, their purpose, the whole purpose in life is now to be cantankerous with you and to push you back and hold you down. And so I just want you to know this coworker whoever might be salty and critical with you, they're not your problem. People are not your problem. Satan is your problem. Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air. It is Satan who uses people to accomplish his purposes, just as God uses people to accomplish his purposes. And so the Bible teaches us that our there is a cosmic battle that's taking place behind the scenes that we cannot see, but it plays out on planet Earth, and you and I are a part of that battle, the kingdom of Satan against the kingdom of God. And it happens all the time in our lives. But I need you to know today that there is a battle that's taking place, not of flesh and blood, uh, you know, as, or principality, but the thief comes, you need to understand, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy uh, but Jesus came to give you life. And I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm just saying that Jesus, you know, he holds my tomorrow. He holds my circumstances. If somebody pushes back against me, I don't have to go after them. I just bring him to King Jesus, right? I just bring him into the throne room of God's grace where I find mercy and help in my time of need. And I'll let God take care of that individual, not me trying to take care of them. Because God can do a whole lot better job than I can. Or maybe you've been slandered. He says, I know that you, you've, some of you are being slandered. You know, you start tweeting about Jesus, and it's amazing how many people will unfollow you. <laughs> what? You know Jesus? Hashtag Jesus anything, and you can be called intolerant, narrow-minded, and bigoted. And people who make those statements, again, they are not your worst enemy. 
Your enemy is the, in the business of trying to destroy you, to discourage you, and to defeat you, but you do not uh, have to allow him to do that or to accomplish that in your life. I just want you to understand, people are used by Satan like people are used by God. People are not your problem. It is Satan using them to push back against you. So pick up the spiritual weapons that God has given to you and begin pushing back and fighting back, not by fighting the person. In other words, I'm not going to get in a Facebook war with somebody messaging back and forth in open public because that accomplishes nothing other than you just make a lot of enemies, right? I would rather be just be praying for them and just allowing God maybe to open up a door of opportunity um, in order to, you know, share Jesus with them or to love them or to serve them in some way because they can't push back against that. People have a real hard time pushing back against love. Now, we are living in a day and time in which Satan is on the attack of our identity. In fact, he's doing this in culture. One of the things he did in the Garden of Eden against Adam and Eve, he said, hey, I'm going to fight against your identity. And, and then he begins questioning, did God really say? And, and so the Bible says that God has made man in his image, in his likeness, male and female. What is Satan attacking in our day and time? The very image of God, male and female. So now in our culture, it's beginning to spell itself out like we can't determine whether or not we're male or female anymore. Let's just let kids decide on their own. And so the ramifications of this over time is going to be huge, huge. But that's the way the enemy operates. He always operates attacking the identity. Isn't that what he did with Jesus? Jesus was baptized. God opened up the heavens and said, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. And the first temptation Satan brings against Jesus, if you are really the son of God, how about you turn these stones into bread? This is a cultural war. But people are not the problem. It's the enemy who is behind it. I'm not saying we step back and just like let it roll over us. We have to take a stand for what God's Word says to us, but we do know that with this church, you know, martyrdom was taking place. They're being afflicted. They're being slandered. All these things are happening, thrown in prison. He says, you know, get ready because it's going to get worse is what Jesus says to the church, but persevere, don't give up. Do you know that in the 20th century, there were more Christians martyred than all 19 centuries prior to that in church history? Do you know that right now that over 200,000 a year are being martyred throughout our world because of their faith? And so this rubs against, people say, well, why doesn't God change that? Why doesn't God do anything about that? And it rubs against the doctrine of sovereignty, which means God is in control of everything, but God doesn't have to control everything. He's big God. It means no matter what decisions humanity makes, God is going to use them to glorify himself, he's going to use them to ultimately bring an end to this planet as we know it, as he has spelled out in the book of Revelation, how that's going to transpire and how that takes place. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I'm all about being conscientious of how we treat our world and the earth upon which we live. But I'm telling you, this world does not end because of green gases, all right? 
That's not the way it, sp- it spells out. The way it spells out is there's coming the day when Jesus is going to return, rapture his church out of the world, and he's going to then unleash the Antichrist upon the world who's going to rise up and make an agreement with Israel for three and a half years, allow them to rebuild their temple. A lot of things are going to transpire. And at the midway in the tribulation, he's going to break that agreement. Literally all hell is going to break loose on planet earth. And so it is all within keeping of God's design. God will have 144,000 evangelists going from corner to corner to earth sharing about, the Jesus, about Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many people will give their life to Christ, but those who give their life with Christ will be martyred during that time. And at the end of that tribulation, Jesus will return with his church at the battle of Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo, and there he will defeat Satan and all of those nations who have risen up against Israel, and then he will cast Satan and his demons into you know, a, a pit, it's going to be a kind of a temporary place for them. At that point, Jesus will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. At the end of a thousand years, Satan is released for a period of time. He raises up the nations against Christ again, and God soundly defeats them, and Satan is then cast into the lake of fire known as Gehenna. All right, so this is how it spells out. Now, there are a lot of details that I've left out, obviously, but I just want you to know God is in control. And so he says, This is really relevant. God sees and he knows everything. When you look at Jesus' description in Revelation 1, it says that Jesus has eyes of fire. Do you know who else have eyes of fire? Mothers. Mothers. They do. I mean, they can see through walls. They can see around corners. They know everything that's going on. It's like, how did you know that? And so God says, I see and I know. I know, no. And I know that it's bitter. But here's what Jesus says to this church. Do not be afraid. I know what's going on. Do not be afraid. Those who say they're Jews, but they're not, they're a synagogue of Satan. They're rising up against you. They're conspiring against you. I know that. I know what's going on. Remember what the city of Smyrna means? Myrrh. Do you know how you get the perfume of myrrh? By crushing it. And the harder you crush it, the greater the perfume. And Jesus is saying, I know what you're going through. I've experienced it myself. But I want to tell you, when you're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, even though you're being crushed, there is a beautiful aroma that's arising out of your life that will change the lives of those around you. Jesus went through a tremendous crushing on the cross, did he not? There was a a bodily crushing. There was an emotional crushing. There was a spiritual crushing as the Father separated himself from Jesus for a temporary time. And so there is no anointing without crushing. And when you find yourself in that moment, in that boulder, that tribulation that begins to squeeze you, or that time of poverty, or the slander that may be going against you, it is in that moment that your coworker, your classmate, that person who is so critical against you that they will see Jesus in you. And I can assure you, when they find themselves in those moments in their lives, you're the one that they're going to look for. Because in the midst of yours, there was just this beautiful aroma of Christ that was coming out of your life. 
even though you are being crushed. It's in that moment that you have lost everything and that you begin to have your faith fortified in the midst of the fire and you still say, blessed is the name of the Lord who gives and takes away or I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Or Isaiah 43, 1, it says, Fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you, you are mine. And when the water rises and the rivers begin to overflow and the fire begins to burn you, you will not be consumed. There is purpose in our suffering. It's not just randomness that God allows it to happen. But no matter how you're crushed, The harder the crushing, the greater the anointing, the greater the aroma. If you'll remain and persevere to the end. Here's the third one. Remember, there is a promise of security. He says to them, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and will suffer. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. That means just a temporary period of time. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He was in the ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And so what is he saying here by way of security? Let's just kind of boil it down like, like this. Um, you know, when Satan rebelled against God, the Bible says that a third of the angels sided with him. They're cast out of heaven. You know what that means, mathematically? I'm not a genius mathematically, but mathematically it means there's two-thirds of angels that are still operating in God's presence. And you know what the Bible says about those angels? They are ministering angels to the body of Christ. You're not fighting alone. Hebrews chapter 12 says, there is such a great cloud of witnesses around us, not only those saints who have gone on before us, but the cloud of God's witnesses, the angelic beings who are fighting on our behalf. And so don't ever forget that your security is found in Christ. It's not found in anything else. In that moment, you know, God may bring about a solution for us in the midst of our fight, or it might be that there are some challenging days ahead of us, but we do know that the aroma of bitterness can be sweet-smelling if we will hang in there. And don't. here's what I think he's saying to us. Listen, don't let your fear determine your fate. Because if I become afraid in the midst of the slander, I become afraid in the midst of the pushback, I become afraid in the midst of culture, because here's a decision every single one of you are going to make. As time moves on and as the end draws nigh, you're going to be required to take a stand for Jesus. Because God's about to separate the wheat from the tares, those who claim to be Christ of Christ but aren't, because as you confront culture, Culture is going to be pushing back on you really hard, and it's already happening. At some point, you've got to make a choice. I'm either going to conform myself to culture, or I'm going to conform myself to Christ. And if you choose to conform yourself to Christ and to stand up for the truth of what Jesus has taught us and to begin living out that truth, you're going to be butting heads with culture, which means culture is going to be pushing back. So the question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to let fear cause you to back down? Because what's happened in the church in America is that the church has become more like the culture than it has become like Christ. And that's why the church is anemic. There's not a lot of power going on. 
you look at all the statistics, there are more megachurches in our country than ever before. But you look at all the stats from North American Mission Board, mission agencies, all we're doing is shifting sheep. We're just moving them from one church to another. This church down here has got the latest, greatest. In all the churches in America, we are reaching less than 2% of the unchurched culture. 2%. It takes right now 35 Baptists just to share their faith one time a year. It's not going to get it done. Right? So if you're fearful of standing for Jesus because of what it's going to cost you, like people, like, they don't like you. Like, dude, you know, you, you're offensive. You're, you're narrow-minded. You're bigoted. I don't mean to, you don't have to be offensive to people. You are to share the truth of God's word in love. Remember, we couch it in love, in grace. We're not to be abrasive. We're not to be, you know, just pushy about it. But I'm telling you, if people watch your life and they see you going through stuff, and they see you walking through that stuff with Jesus, and there is a crushing, and there is an aroma, it won't be long before they'll start looking for you when life begins to crush them, and they've got no answers. And he says, I'll give you the crown of life. That's, that is, the reward is eternal life. That, now, don't get me wrong here. We do not do certain things to inherit eternal life. Certain religions say that, you know, do this, do that, you'll inherit eternal life. We don't die as a martyr to inherit eternal life. It's because we have eternal life that we're willing to die as a martyr. And so one of the individuals who did just that was the pastor of this church. His name was Polycarp. And Polycarp took a stand for Jesus, butting up against his culture and the Roman officials. And when they heard and caught word that he was refusing to bow and to, to, and to proclaim Caesar as Lord... They'd had enough. They're going to shut him down and thus shut down the church. And so he, he refused to bow. They marched him into an amphitheater that housed thousands of people, and there was a mob there waiting to see his death. And as he stood before the proconsul, they commanded him, deny Christ, deny Christ, or you die. And here's what he said in response. 86 years I have served him and has never once has he wronged me. How shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And so in response to that, the government says, the governor shouted, I'll have you destroyed by fire. I'll burn you at the stake unless you change your attitude. And so Polycarp answers, you th threaten me with First, which burns for an hour, and after a little while it is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fires of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring it on. He walked over. He stood on the, by the stake on the pile of wood and said, light the fire. And they did. And he died. Why would he do that? Because through his crushing there came a sweet aroma. Remember what I said last week about the church at Ephesus? Jesus said, if you don't return to your first love, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You know, the church at Ephesus went away. They refused to return to their first love. You know, the church of Smyrna is still in existence today. 
And so he says, I will give you a crown of life. There are two Greek words for the word crown, and I'm going to wrap this up in just two minutes here. The, the, the word diadem and the word stephanos. Diadem was like the crown of royalty, right, like the emperors would wear. The stephanos was a wreath that was used in the Olympic Games. And so if you won an Olympic game, you would stand up what was called the bema, and there you would receive your reward, the, the crown of stephanos. It was... Um, this is the word that is used here by Jesus in reference to the crown that is going to be received. We don't know a lot about the crowns other than there are six different crowns that the Bible talks about, but he says this is going, you're going to receive the Stephanos, the crown of life. Remember the crown jewel of Asia, the, name of the, the, the nickname for the city of Smyrna, right? So it was a shiny royal crown, and Jesus is saying to them, is that there are two crowns, those who live in, for li those who live in Smyrna, there is one crown that's a shiny earthly crown, there's a Stephanos crown that is the eternal crown of God. Now choose which you are going to live for. And he says, if you persevere, he says, that he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. What is the second death? Very simply, I'm born into this world once. I have a physical birth. I can be born twice and die once or be born once and die twice. I was born February 12th, 1958. That's my physical birth. I was born again in March of 1974. Therefore, I will never taste of the second death. I will experience a first death in which my spirit and soul will separate from my body when it dies, and move into the presence of the Lord. One day Jesus will come back and resurrect my body and bring it back in union with my spirit and soul. But I will be with God forever. If I do have never experienced a second birth with Jesus, then I would this physical body, when it came to an end, my soul and spirit would separate from this body, and it would, it would enter into a realm of separation from God the Bible calls hell, an eternal separation this body would go into the grave, and one day it would, too, be resurrected and reunited with my spirit and soul. And so Jesus talks about a lot, the lake of fire, the lake of Gehenna. Uh, in the book of Revelation chapter 20, we see that uh, spelled out, and there is the eternal separation. So born once physically, I can die twice. I die spiritually, spiritual separation. That is the second death. If I'm born twice, born physically and born into God's kingdom, I experience death, yes, but I don't experience the second death. I experience a movement into the presence of God forever. That's what Jesus is promising. That is the security that you and I have in Christ, that no matter what pushback I might get, we are living in a time, I'm telling you, um, it will not be long when there are going to be certain subjects that I will preach from this pulpit that could end me in jail. It's just a matter of time before it happens. And so I've got to make a choice. Do I continue to teach God's word and his truth because I love people and I want people to experience the love of Christ, the love of God, because God is not against us. He is for us and he has done everything in his power to bring us into the realm of relationship with him so that we might experience the love and the joy and the grace of Christ, which is all wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus. And it's the gospel we are to take to the world around us. 
And so the question is, have you ever given your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life? I didn't ask you if you knew about Christ. I didn't ask you if you've read about him. Do you personally know him? Do you have relationship with him? And are you growing in that relationship? Are you persevering in that relationship? If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to pray for you. And I want to pray together. And I want to pray for our church. Here's my passion. Here's my desire for our church. That the fire of God would begin consuming our hearts once again for those who are outside the kingdom of God. If only 2% of people are actually being reached in the unreached world, out of the kingdom of Satan, transferred into the kingdom of, of God, what are we doing about that? What are we going to do about that? We are one church in one community, but this community is our responsibility. Where you live, your neighbors, they're your responsibility. You are the missionary on the field. You are the missionary in the workplace. You are the missionary in the school. No one's going to take Jesus to them, probably unless you do, if the statistics are right. So the question is, what are we going to do about that? And we can sit back and say, well, not my responsibility. Yes, it is. Jesus commissioned all of us to go and make disciples. And the disciple maker is one who helps somebody find the kingdom of God and then helps develop them in that newfound walk with their newfound Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all of our responsibilities. And as we collectively come here on Sunday mornings and we bring our gifts and talents and abilities, and some of you guys, you're teachers, you help teach and, and train, and some of you serve in other ways as greeters and ushers and there's everything we do here on Sunday morning is absolutely important. If we're watching kids, you know, we're teaching kids and pouring Jesus into kids' lives. I don't care if they're back there in the bed babies or back in trilogy. We're pouring Jesus into their lives because we want to raise them up to be champions for Christ. I want to raise up a generation who are not afraid to take the full gospel of Christ into the world around them. Because if they don't do it, then the times continue to get worse. As the church of Jesus Christ goes, so goes its culture. Look at our culture. If Jesus were to give us a report card, I don't think it would be a glaring report like he gave the church at Smyrna to whom he said, you've been faithful. You've been faithful. Keep moving forward. Father, we thank you for truth, even as hard as that might be for us. And Father, you know my heart this morning. I'm not here to make anybody feel guilty. I'm just here to, to proclaim your word and to challenge all of us with our God-given responsibility. To be followers of Jesus, to love him, that he would be the center, the hub of our lives, that the most intimate relationship we would have is with him and allow all the intimacy out of that relationship to flow down to the relationships we have with other people so that they see Jesus in us, they experience him, they taste him, and they know that he is good. You've called us to rise up and to face the culture that is in front of us, people who are, who are living in blindness, who are imprisoned in their own spirits, who are chasing after the wind, 
so many different things thinking that this is going to do it for me. This is going to satisfy me. This is going to finally bring fulfillment and contentment in my life and only to find out it's a dead-end street. Oh, God, open our eyes, Holy Spirit. See as you see. Have the compassion of Jesus in our hearts that would cause us to, to do something. To pray for them. To speak to them. To serve them. That we may have opportunity to share Jesus with them. I pray for those who are here this morning that have never accepted Christ into their lives. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just draw them now. Draw them here this morning, at this moment. Today is the day of salvation. And if that's you, maybe you'll pray, pray a prayer or something like, Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving me your life, your life in exchange for mine. Jesus, I pray that you will forgive me of my sins and make my heart new and clean. Jesus, I'm... I'm saying today that I want to follow you with everything I have and all that I am. I want to put my life into your hands. Now may you use it however you desire. Thank you for your wonderful gift of salvation. In the name of Christ, my Lord, and my newfound Savior, amen.